Welcome to Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the film and television industry. We're bringing you the visionary directors and producers, the talented cinematographers, editors, sound designers, and more who really make the magic happen. So let's go beyond the red carpet and discover a fascinating world of behind-the-scenes talent. Hello there, welcome to the Soundstage Insider podcast. My name is Jamie, and today we are talking to award-winning director, producer, and writer, Menhaj Huda. We're covering everything you need to know about being a director and his exciting upcoming project, Heist 88, which is available now on Showtime. Definitely check that out. It's a really exciting film and we talk about it in depth in the episode coming up. So yeah, we cover a lot about directing and Menhaj's experience and history in this world, both in the UK and the US. So there's some crossover there with Declan Lowney's episode from a few weeks ago. So yeah, I'm going to stop waffling and we're going to get straight to it. So check out Heist 88 on Showtime. And here's our interview with Menhaj Huda. So Menhaj, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to talk about Heist 88 and more broadly your directing work. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, looking forward to it. So before we get on to the movie, I'd like to talk more broadly about your directing career. This podcast is very much about the behind the scenes work that people do in film and TV, and you've done a lot, both sides of the Atlantic. So to kick things off, how did it begin? How did you start working the other side of the camera? Well, I, I would say, you know, I'm not one of these people that grew up with a sort of dream of becoming a filmmaker. And in fact, it wasn't really something that was on my radar um, until quite late on. You know, I, I did very well at school. I studied engineering at Oxford. And actually, when I was there, Ooh. I started DJing, which, you know, when we come to talk about Heist 88, bizarrely came full circle because it was at the time when house music was arriving in the UK. The whole rave scene was kicking off. And I got very much swept up into that world and was really inspired by it. And it made me, I guess, just want to reassess my career path and want, at that time, just explore doing other things that were maybe more creative. And television is something that actually popped up on my radar for the first time. And as I, I guess one of the things I realized about myself was that as a child, I'd watched a lot of TVs at TV shows and movies. And so was very kind of knowledgeable about that. And I, I interviewed with B, with the BBC, but I didn't get that job. And then I ended up graduating and then coming to the US that summer with a, like a work exchange visa and ended up getting a job at the Fox TV studios. Yeah. As what's called a page, you're essentially an usher for the audiences for live sitcom recordings and things like that. And it really like was my first taste of working in TV and I was kind of pretty sold on it. I, I loved the environment and just felt like there was something I could do. And, you know, I guess even then I was, you know, in terms of doing scripted filmmaking was not something on my radar at all. I felt like the British film industry was in a place in the late 80s where 
it wasn't obviously something that I wanted to be a part of, you know. So I came back to London. I got a job as a runner at Sky News. And that was the first time I walked into an edit suite. And as soon as I saw an edit suite, I was like, this is where I belong because it was very technical, a lot of computers, machines, and it was also very creative. So I trained to be an editor. And all the time, all along, I was still DJing and, and, and um, you know, being involved in the whole music scene. And I started working in music videos. I started freelancing as a music video director. And then I, I guess I'd made a commitment that I thought I was going to explore this area and see if it was something that was for me. By now, I was committed to it. And I felt like I needed to maybe go and study film. And I was on the verge of applying to NYU Film School uh, when um, I came up with this idea for a music show with a friend of mine. And it got picked up by Channel 4. And it was all basically centered around the rave scene like because I felt like at the time there was just no exposure of what was really happening on the ground. And that show got picked up. We, they gave us some money to make a pilot. They loved the pilot and basically turned around to me and my friend Lucy Robinson and said, you're going to direct it and you're going to produce it. So four years out of uh, university, I had my own TV show on Channel 4. Wow. So that was at the beginning of my directing career as without someone who was really formally trained as a director. But I obviously had had a bit of experience editing by then and I'd also produced some music videos at that stage. So I just kind of followed my path and learned how to direct on the job, as it were, sort of very learned very quickly. I guess that's one of the skill sets I did, did have and still do. And, and just continued that journey on. So the first sort of five years of my career, four or five years of my career, I essentially worked at channel, you know, on channel four music shows and youth programs and did a lot of self-shooting and experimenting. Uh, and then I started directing music videos and then directing commercials. And by then, you know, we're talking about the early nineties, um, the film industry in the UK was changing. You know, Danny Boyle had made Shallow Grave, Guy Ritchie had made Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. So my focus sort of then started shifting because I could see myself being part of that kind of community of filmmakers. And so then I made my first short film, um, which is called Jump Boy. And that basically changed my career into scripted. Um, I got signed up by ICM in, in the UK and they started representing me for uh, film and TV. And again, you know, it was not something that I was necessarily like super comfortable with like going yeah of course i can make movies and tv shows you know yeah i made a short film which was really good and i enjoyed that experience but i i could tell that it was a different animal to to go into a five-week shoot or a 10-week shoot and so i i you know as always i think in my career certainly in those days i just took it one step at a time i had to sort of gauge myself as to whether it was something i wanted to pursue and whether i i was actually good enough well, the work that I was doing was good enough for my own standards to, to continue it. Mm. Um, thankfully, I got some opportunities which really pushed me forward and propelled my career because that short film was selected as one of six filmmakers to look out for in the year 2000. And it was actually showcased in New York and in LA. So I was on this scheme where you know the six shorts were brought to the US. And that kind of reignited my relationship with Hollywood. And, that, and from that moment on, I had one eye on moving and coming to the U US to really um, see what I could achieve here. 
And right. so that's kind of, I'd say, the first part of my career. That's how it, it transpired, it, which I think was you know, not your normal um, <laughs> to being a film director. But clearly, you know, I had a passion for film and I loved a lot of the American indie films um, and, and some of the sort of more bigger budget blockbuster type films that were uh, coming out. But initially, I would say, you know, even when I was at uni and in the early days when I was not really thinking about being a feature film director, I had a very clear idea of the, my taste of what I liked. And, and I, I then was able to follow that through when I came to start making my first feature and, and, and continue on from there. When you talk about that transition in the UK film industry that happened with Shallow Grave, Lockstock, was that purely a stylistic change or was that a, like the community shifted in a way that you wanted to be a part of? What was it that changed? I think um, for me, it was really about the audience. You know, it was definitely like, uh, you know, I was coming from experiencing DJing at nightclubs and parties and warehouse parties and stuff like that, where my audience was young people and and I was basically experimenting, playing thing, you know, music, which nobody had really heard before, you know, and I was witnessing how to manipulate the audience and their reactions and what made them like happy and what made them go crazy and what turned them off. So that really was kind of, I, I would say for me, the parallels of going into filmmaking was, uh, and, and especially when I went, entered film, as opposed to making entertainment shows and music shows for TV, that's very different because that was more about communicating what was happening to a younger audience. But it, it, that the idea of the audience was still very important to me. And I felt like what was happening with uh, these new filmmakers that were coming through is it was expanding from like a very niche art house audience to like a very mainstream youth audience. You know, what that shows, you know, like Shadow Trainspotting, Lockstock, they were not really necessarily, they were artistic in their own way, but they were really like aiming for a mainstream commercial audience. And, and that's what really um, sparked my interest because I was always about that. And, and I guess that's why, you know, I always had an eye to moving to the US because they're the kings of making that kind of content, you know. Yeah, they have the budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I think. laughs> so I was intrigued by what you said about being able to sort of read an audience or at least predict an audience to a certain degree. Is that, is that a skill you pick up in television because you're getting more real-time feedback, right? As you're making the show, you can tweak it and adjust it. Whereas with a film, you make it and it's out, it's done, right? It is and it isn't. Because I, I remember like when I was making TV shows, you never like had that sense of like, well, what? working and what what's not working because you you kind of and by the time you make those adjustments it's it's already too late like if you if you're especially on a scripted show if you're trying to make you've got to be on a 20 episode run if you want to make some adjustments to the storyline um and we didn't ever really do that in the uk you know the maximum you number of episodes you might get is like eight or six or something so you know in in that sense i think where I really felt the audience was when I actually, and also when you're watching TV, you don't get a sense of, yeah, you get ratings and numbers, but you don't get a sense of how the audience is reacting to a particular show. That, I remember 
sensing when I, you know, even when I had this sh screening for my first short film, we literally like packed out uh, the Curzon Soho with about 500 people when, when it was just the one big theater at that time. And, and just like seeing and experiencing the audience reaction of that short just suddenly brought back to me like what I was experiencing when I used to DJ, like, and I was like, oh, okay. So this, now I understand how I can actually manipulate an audience through film and I can actually be there while they're sitting there watching it. Um, so that kind of really opened my eyes and, and um, made me want to kind of go through that door of like exploring, you know, what you, what's possible uh, in, in that arena. Right. More so than TV because TV just goes out and you don't really get a sense of that, of how the audience is reacting. But with a film, going to festivals or going to just popping, you know, you've got your film being released in, a, in the movie theater, you can just pop in and actually watch it like secretly with the audience and see yeah. what they're reacting. You're the weirdo at the front watching the audience as they're watching the movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to picking projects then, how front of mind is the potential reception when you're choosing a project? You know, is is it purely a creative line? I'm really inspired. I love this. This is something I want to, always wanted to do versus it's going to get some kind of critical response. You know what? I, I'm really drawn to things. Um, I love, you know, I watch a lot of different types of things, but I also am very aware of what's missing. Like, so if there's something that I feel is not being catered for, my instinct is to go in in that direction and try and make something for that audience or feel like, oh, there is an audience for that. So let's make something that sort of fills that gap. I don't know why that's always been my sensibility. And if I feel like someone's just done something that I wanted to do, I'll be like, okay, that was really good. There's no point in me doing more of that. And I'll walk away from it. So like when I made Kid Hood, you know, my first short film was basically like a, a mini version of Kid Hood. It was like a British urban movie. And I hadn't really seen that. I was seeing it coming out of other places, obviously the, the US, but also films like La Haine coming out of Paris, coming out of um, City of God, coming out of Brazil. So these films were coming out and I was desperate like to, to make a film that would sit alongside those kind of films because I felt like there was an audience for it. If those films were being hits in the UK, then we could make a film like that in the UK that would definitely be a hit in the UK and then possibly go global. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to get Cadelhood made at, at the time that it was. And, you know, it had, I'm, I'm not saying it was the easiest of rides, and but I feel a huge amount of satisfaction from knowing that I was one of the first to break that mold in the UK, which obviously opened the doors for lots of other show, films and TV shows like Top Boy, etc. You know, that's, um, I feel like that was the the, the one film that really opened that, uh, you know, it was very, very important. You know, if, if that film hadn't been made or had been as successful as it was, um, I'm not sure when the other shows would have come along, when the other films would have come along. And your RMDB very much reflects your sort of eclectic interests and focus when it comes to different genres and, you know, all across the board. So is there, is there anything that a script has that will always appeal? Is there something that script writers do that jumps out to you when it's right or do things that particularly bug you when it's wrong? You know, or is it just case by case? I think um, 
It is case by case, but I feel like the the smart writing is always when you really get the characters that jump off the page and you get like, even when someone's being mysterious about what's really happening with the story as you know, I, there are some scripts you read and you literally like, I have no idea what's really happening here. And there are other scripts you read where you're like, oh, okay, this is not something that's being hammered oh, you know, on my head. It's not on the nose, but I'm really getting like what's happening, you know, when t- in terms of the dynamics and, and the, the propulsion of the story, right? And those are the kind of scripts that you really want to find because it, it, it's just so much more interesting for the actors to, to play those kind of roles where they're not just standing there telling each other what's happening, you know, in an expository manner. They're playing out scenes, um, and but it's very clear, like what the undertow of, of the story is uh, during those scenes, and those are the, the scripts, you know, and and that's what I mean. Like that could be a, a love story, and it could be a an action film, or it could be a, a, a gritty urban drama. You know, all of those things can happen. But if the style of that script is written in that way, then they immediately appeal to me because that's that's kind of what I'm looking for. That's fascinating, yeah. And and so that's when it comes to picking scripts. What about, I guess, this more practical, when it comes to picking crew, and are there certain qualities that you look for when working with other members of the team? Technical ability is given, right? Everyone's pretty good at what they do. Are there other things that go into the decision-making process? Yeah, I think, you know, it's obviously you have to have the ability to communicate. People, you know, you find along the way that, are on your level, have said same sense of humor as you, but aesthetically they understand your vibe as a director, what what kind of images that you like or what kind of sounds or what kind of music you like, you know, that all of those come into play. And I've been fortunate enough to, the kind of talent they have here and in Canada is just so top notch that you're pretty spoiled. Right? But I've been fortunate enough to find a group of people that I've worked with now several times who really helped me visualize what I have in mind. It's, you know, I don't have to hammer them too hard to, to say, no, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. They get there before me and or, or they'll make suggestions, which I'm like, yeah, that's even better than what I was imagining because that's kind of the way I want to go. And that's been a real pleasure and a privilege to, to be able to work with that kind of talent that, since I've moved to the US. Um, yeah. I think it's a tough one in the UK because what you realize once you come here is how much of the top level crew in the UK are basically booked out by the big American shows and movies. And so by the time you come to doing an indie movie for the UK or like even a high-end TV drama for the UK, the level of crew that's actually available to you and it's purely a budget thing, is actually lower than what the people that are working on the Star Wars films and the, the Harry Potter films and, and those big blockbusters that are all being filmed. And then they're all taking up the best crew. And so that is a, something that you don't feel as much here because there's just the overall standard and the number of people that are available are much bigger and much higher. And so... In Canada, one of the things I found in Vancouver when I went there was how there wasn't like a 
segregation between feature film people and the TV people. You'd find people that would work on these big films were still working on these kind of TV shows and vice versa. Whereas in the UK, you'd find that, oh yeah, the people that work at those top levels, they just basically exist in, in, in that stratosphere. They will, you know, they tend not to come down unless there's a strike or something and nothing's happening. And then suddenly they'll make themselves available. But, you know, that's, it was, um, I, I, that's something I noticed that, you know, the, the, the level of talent uh, where in the UK you'd find was harder to access here. Um, it's it's uh, much more available and uh, easier to, to get what you want visually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk then about the differences between the UK industry and, and the US. How how much of a challenge was it to transition from one to the other? I know, I mean, you've been back and forth um, throughout your career, as you said at the beginning, but once you were in the professional industry in the UK, was it just like a kid in a toy shop when you got to America? Well, it's not. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess one of the things that I feel like really helped me to make the transition is because I was very aware of the fact that the way TV is made here, and I, I really came here uh, when I moved here to sort of get my feet under the table of what was happening in TV work here. And, you know, they, they make an episode of a TV show in eight or nine days, right? So they're shooting the eight, eight or nine days. So that just doesn't happen in the UK. Like, you know, you, you do blocks of two or three episodes and you shoot for, I don't know, six, seven weeks or eight weeks for those two or three episodes. And so to get your head around, how do I jump in, prep for seven, eight days, and then shoot for seven, eight days and knock out an episode of a huge show like The Flash? How does that happen? And it just, that is something that I wanted to really get my head around. And one of the things I, I you know, you've probably seen in my credits were, was that I was working on Coronation Street. And when I, they, when they, they, they approached me and I immediately said yes, because I was like, Okay, they're the shows in the UK. Yeah, it's you know it's a soap if you like, but they're churning through pages, and I wanted to get a sense of what that feels like to be prepared and to shoot with actors and get that under my belt. So by the time I got to do my first American show, which actually shot in London, uh, an episode of The Royals, it was very much done as an American show, and so I got to really. Uh, flex those muscles and see how it went. And it went really well. So so once I'd got that under my belt, I was very confident coming to the US that I would be able to manage that kind of a schedule. That was the main thing because that's what everyone talks about. If you if you don't make your days, if you know, then the chance of you being allowed to do more TV are diminished. So I was very conscious of that. And then when I finally got here, I actually started doing these TV movies first before I, I got into the episodic. But it was still the same thing. It's like the, the amount of days that you have to do like a two-hour movie was much smaller than what you'd get in the UK. But I was very much prepared for that. And I think that, you know, that's what I would say is, is the main challenge. And then when I started working on the bigger budget shows, then you, you realize that, yeah, e even though the budgets are bigger, you have a much bigger team, you still need to be able to manage that team to get exactly what you need done in the time. And you have to make these judgment calls as to what is a priority, how much more resources you need for one particular scene than another one. And 
you know, you work with your first AD and your director of photography to really get from them if you what you're trying to achieve is going to be achievable in that time. And they, you know, all those conversations, I never ever felt like the or they looked at me like this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. They very much enjoyed and appreciated my take on it. And we just worked together really well. Like, and you know, that's what I'm when I started feeling like, yeah, I, I feel very comfortable in this environment and I can do this. And and the final product we're ending up with is just so much above anything I've done in the UK that I'm like super, super happy to to continue doing this. Um yeah. and of course the more you do it, the easier it becomes and and then, you know, you just build on that. And 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 thankfully I've I've got a whole bunch of episodes under my belt now and feel comfortable to to continue on from there. Yeah. It's funny to me that you used Coronation Street to prep for The Flash. <laughs> it's a funny transition. Crazy. Yeah. So if you went back to the UK, are there things that you would take back from the skills that you've developed over here? And I yeah, guess I, vice versa also, are there things from the UK? Yeah, I mean, you- one of the things I think that's really different, and I talk about this a lot with the producers here, is that you know the writers really play a big role uh, in, in this episodic TV and to a lesser degree in film, but, but still they have a role to play. And so one of the things I, I, in my memory, maybe things have changed now in the UK, but I certainly felt like the writers and directors never got to spend enough time together. And so things would always go through a producer or a script editor, you know, it just took time. Whereas on these TV shows, you've got your writer with you the whole time. So any questions and that you have about something that's on the page that doesn't quite make sense, they're right there. They'll answer the question. And, and, and if it doesn't work, they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's a mistake. Let's rewrite that. And it gets sorted out before you anywhere near the set. So that's, I'd say, the main thing that I would love to bring back to the UK is is for them to to let the directors work more closely with the writers. Mm. And I've heard that writers' rooms are becoming more of a thing in the UK now, where they weren't so much in the past, right? That's from what I heard. It is. I mean, I've been also hearing stories about how, you know, the director's role is being diminished in the UK as well, you know, by that happening where, and I'm hoping that 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 doesn't continue. We can redress that balance because I think the way to balance that is for producer, writer, and director to be working together to to create this, to ultimately to create the director's vision because you know, that's why you've hired a director. So yeah. should be supporting them and making sure that everyone's on the same page. Bringing it up to your directing work today, we're talking about Heist 88. Um, what was your first involvement in this? How did you get involved? Did you bring this to the, to the world or did, were you brought in? I wish, I, I wish I'd known <laughs> about something like this. No, I mean, so this was a project that was developed by uh, Dwayne Johnson Cochrane through Courtney B. Vance and Angela Bassett's company, Bassett Vance Productions. And it has quite a history. Like it, initially it was, um, it was a, based on true events that uh, Dwayne was uh, very aware of because he was a reporter in Chicago at that time. And he actually covered that story. So they, they decided to create a fictionalized version of this these events that happened whatever 30 40 years ago and 
initially i think it was uh they attempted it as a as a limited series um to really delve into the lives of all the characters a bit more and then it i think it jumped various uh houses it went from like fx to hbo and then went ended up at paramount and they decided that actually they felt it they'd rather make a movie than a series out of it so uh, Dwayne rewrote it as a, as a movie and then they went out looking for a director and, and um, fortunately for me it landed on my lap and I went in and pitched for it. I think I probably am the only director that they'd met who actually knew the Chicago house music scene from 1988. Right, which, of course. Like, was in the script, one of the characters was a DJ, like a house music DJ and, um, and that's one of the things I loved about this project. It was like, oh, this is like a there's a character in it as a house music DJ, but also it's a crime thriller. You know, it's like bringing two of my favorite things together in one project. So, um, so yeah, I had to go in and pitch myself and, and, um, convince them that I was the, the right person to direct it. And, um, thankfully for me, they, they decided that was a good call. And yeah, I got hired and, and, uh, began that journey, uh, whenever it was in June last year. And, Talk about the casting process because there's a lot of new actors in it. Obviously, Courtney B. Vance is in it. I mean, he's incredible, <laughs> as you'd yeah. expect. Um, what was that process like? What so I mean, when you have a project like this, and it always also already comes with a star attached, uh, like Courtney B. Vance, that makes it even more appealing. So you're yeah. like, please, <laughs> I don't have to go through the uh, the turmoil of trying to find a, a lead actor for this. Um, and obviously he's like super connected to a lot of people. So he was very involved. We had a, an amazing casting director, Aisha Kohli, who was, um, you know, again, she's worked with Ava DuVernay and all these you know, huge people. So she also was very clued up about who was coming through and who would be the, the next uh, generation of uh, actors that we should be approaching. But for me, like that's one of the best things about the movie that I got to really mold the, the, the characters of the younger people through um well one of the actors i'd worked with before uh, precious way from a show called queens and um the others i just go back to my sort of tried and tested method of just like watching these self-tapes which is kind of what we do these days we, we you know we don't tend to bring people into the room um and i was very clear from reading the script what what the archetypes were of each character and and i could see that in the self tapes and i just needed to sort of spend a bit of time with them to make sure that they could really hit the notes for the toughest scenes that that's what i like to do in my auditions is to really give the actors the the, the toughest scenes and see if they can pull it off when they're in a very uh, sanitized environment uh, without any help from even the person that's reading across from them and if they can pull it off in that environment, then I feel confident that by the time we get them dressed in, in the right locations and, and uh, with the right actors around them, that they can really deliver those beats in the most impactful way. And this was no different, right? So we found these people, um, you know, these actors like who were, you know, young, up and coming. I put them through the tests that I always do. They came through and... Um, yeah, I wasn't able to do what I like doing is to put them all in the room together and see what the dynamics were because obviously we're doing this all online and people are like all over the place, you know, in different parts of the country. But it was, um, yeah, testament to everyone's sort of commitment to like really making this the best that they 
went with my choices. Um, you know, I think there was a bit of deliberation about whether they were the right choices, but as soon as we got them together in Chicago, and remember going out for dinner with uh, Dwayne and, and the kids for the first time, and they were just like chatting away together. And we were just watching them going, this is our gang. Like, this is exactly how we imagined it was going to be working. And they just, you know, they all individually, they had qualities which um, really were the characters, you know, we could see that. And, and they played with, you know, played on that. And so then combining that with the stature of uh, Courtney and then Keith David and, and Keisha Sharp, who, you know, came into the picture as the main characters, we just had, you know, a really, really strong cast that um, made my life a lot easier because that's kind of what I like to do is just bring the, the right cast together. And then my job I see is, is just creating a safe environment for them to really express themselves and, and really let loose with their performances. And that's why, you know, I feel like the film is so strong. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I never even considered up until this point that with self-tapes now, there's no chemistry reads or anything, is there? Or do you all get on Zoom or like... Yeah, I mean, you know what? We've actually done chemistry reads online and I'm just sitting there going, this is so weird. Like, yeah. you know, like the whole point is, you know, you're supposed to get them in a room together. And hopefully we will be able to do that again at some point. But I think people have started getting too used to this kind of um, yeah. thing. But I... And all, you know, I, I've also highlighted, you know, just going off the track a little bit I'm, I'm, I'm with this self-tape business about how it doesn't always give you the best performance. Like you've got to be able to audition people live and see if they can really pull it off. Because what you learn is that, you know, people, someone might have done a hundred takes to get that perfect take and then they send it to you and you go, wow, that's amazing. Right. But what you don't know is like they've just had to like fine tune that themselves before you see that. Gone through three meltdowns in the process. Then, That's right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. That's why you're like, no, no, I need to see them in the room and see if they could actually really do that when I'm standing there in front of them, you know, in a grey room. Um, so yeah, the, the, that's all kind of learning, uh, the, the, learning the new curve with this uh, the, this new methodology. So obviously that was a big sigh of relief when you, you know, went out to dinner and they were all getting on and they, you know, you saw your cast together for the first time. What was it like on set? What was Courtney's presence on set must have brought a real different energy to the kids? You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, Courtney's like great for, you know, he's a great mentor. He, you know, he really looked after everyone and they've stayed friends, all of them together um, since finishing shooting. And that, like I said, that's a really um, important aspect of the relationship they had like they trusted each other and they trusted Courtney and you know Courtney was really able to help them just feel comfortable like you know it's it must have been daunting for them because like I don't know oh actually Bentley had obviously worked with with Courtney on 61st Street I mean I watched that and noticed Bentley as like this amazing actor in that. And I was wondering if there was a way to bring him in. And then when he actually did a self-tape for a different character, not for Marshall, I just was immediately like, oh, he's grown up. He's like, like six foot tall now. Like in 61st Street, he was like, you know, he was playing a 14 year old. So he was much younger. So then suddenly when I saw him, I was like, no, 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 let's get him to read for Marshall. And everyone was like, really? You sure? I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's, he's the guy. 
And so then he he did that self tape and sent that in. And I was just and everyone was like, yeah, you're right. That that's he's great. So then he took the position of Marshall, and obviously he and um, Courtney had a relationship. And then Xavier and Nikon were like the two new up and coming actors that uh, Aisha had presented to us. And like I said, there was a bit of discussion about who was going to play which role. But for me, it was very clear that that, that those are the uh, the roles I wanted them to play, and and, uh, and thankfully everyone got on board with um, with my choices. So yeah, it life a lot easier. Yeah. So when when you're directing, do you direct established talent differently to up and coming talent, or is it the same approach for you? I think well, like I said, it, it's different from project to project because like when you're working on a TV show that's been running for six seasons. It's very difficult to tell the lead actor what you want them to do because they obviously know the show much better than you. You know, you, they've been doing a hundred episodes. You may have done four or five by the time, you know, you get to that. So if you have their trust, then yeah, you can give them notes and, and they may expect you to, but there are other kinds of actors who don't. They just want to come and do their thing and then you let them do it and you know, it's it's a part of a big machine and you're there steering it for a few days and you don't really want to steer it off the rail. So if everyone's comfortable with what they're doing, then that's fine. On a movie, it's it's different because you want to rehearse and you want to find things because you you, know, you brought all these new people together. So you want to find things. So I'm I'm kind of Anywhere in between that, I'm I'm comfortable. I need to gauge what what kind of project it is and be mindful of like treading on people's toes. But at the same time, I'm I'm very clear about the level of performance I want to achieve. And if I feel like that's not being achieved for whatever reason, then I will step in and, and tweak that. But so far, especially with the younger actors, maybe you need to work with them a little bit more than you do with the the seasoned actors. And on the whole, in my experience so far, is when you're working with the more established actors and the names, that they just, they're super professional and they just bring the, the goods straight away. And nine times out of 10, you're kind of, your joy is on the floor going, uh, wow, okay. I didn't, I wasn't expecting it to be that good. And so you, you're just happy and, and you move on. You know, you don't need to keep getting them to do that more and more and more. And if things go wrong, and then, yeah, so far, touch wood, nothing has gone wrong. And I hadn't had to deal with anything like that. And I think that's kind of what you get when you when you actually put a decent, like, really top-notch cast together. You end up with a, a much more straightforward sort of performance at a very high level uh, without too many complications. Yeah, makes perfect sense. How important for this project was the 80s <laughs> in terms of the storytelling and the visual side of things as well? Was that a particularly attractive component well, I mean, to this project? Actually, the, the, the truth is that the, the timing of this story is the most important thing because it was just before banking became computerized, wire transfers became computerized. And the whole key to this crime happens because in those days, they used to make these transfers with these phone calls. And so that really, in terms of the plot, was critical. Like if somebody had not figured that out and tried to do that at that time, 
this movie wouldn't have happened. You know, by the time they they got computers in and they started doing wire traps, obviously now we have like uh, different kinds of crimes with uh, identity theft and all that that stuff's happening online. But in those days, like to actually pull something like this off, it just wouldn't have been possible. So it's actually really important. I think they they even tried to. Uh, I think Dwayne was telling me that they even tried to make this a present day type movie. And of course it just wasn't going to work like yeah. um, in terms of the actual crime. Yeah. There's different crimes that you can do, but with that and, and it, and it worked, you know, I, I felt like it was a really interesting expose of how that flaw and it, you know, it didn't happen dozens of times. It happened this once and somebody figured it out like, and they managed to pull it off. And so that, you know, that I think was really important for the story. And then of course, as soon as the story is set in that way, then you have every, everything else has to spiral off that timeline. And then, you know, actually going back to the actors, what was interesting with the, the young actors is how trying to teach them how to be characters, you know, which is sort of in a similar world to the world they live in, but actually completely different because they don't have access to computers and smartphones and uh, information at the tip of their finger, you know, and having to dial phones and push buttons on, on phones and pick up a handset, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and or drop a coin in a coin, <laughs> like a phone box. <laughs> um, all that stuff is very alien to them, you know, and it was uh, interesting to see how they reacted and, and try and teach them how we used to do stuff. Yeah, the sort of plot device of not having everything at our fingertips on our phones right now. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. I mean, even the scene where where they've actually done the heist, they get to the airport, they're sitting around in in the yeah. uh, hotel room. It's like, you know, that's intensity of that scene is like, no, that now you'd be able to, on the yeah. In the past, phone. you had to wait for things, right? <laughs> yeah, you'd be able to see. Oh yeah, she, they track them and go. Oh, they're in that place, right? It's just. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So when you're making a movie like Heist 88, things, you know, go swimmingly one day and then other days they're more challenging. So what is your approach when things, maybe a scene's not working out, maybe someone's having a hard time. What is your approach when the, the chips are down in those situations? I think the main thing is to just focus on what what isn't going right and try and pinpoint it. And, you know, one of the reasons I feel I've, been successful in in transitioning to being a director from uh, studying engineering was I was very much uh, trained to be a problem solver in 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 every sense of them and and when you get into filmmaking and especially as a director what you find is everything is is problem solving whether it's a script problem a story problem it's a you know character problem or is it's a costume problem or it's a makeup and hair problem, you know, these, all, all of these things, elements come in and you're constantly having to solve these problems or it's a prop, you know, yeah, we need to get in through this door, but you know, how can I hold this and hold this bag and get through at the same time? All these things become these problems and you have to be really on your toes and really understand before you get to those points and have those solutions ready for everyone. So when things go wrong while you're on set, A, that happens very rarely because you try and prep for them and you ask these questions before you get onto set but when things don't turn out in the way they do then you basically have to get your team together and figure out what's that what makes most sense you know do we just stop doing this and move on to the next thing and we come back to it or 
what the solutions are. And it, it's very much like a, a team effort, a management problem of literally just getting everyone together and figuring out how to use our limited time in the best way. Cause that's kind of what you're up against is time. Like you've got so many days uh, and hours in a day to, to achieve what you have to do. And, and if it means that you have to sort of sacrifice a scene or something, a, a shot, then that's what you have to do. But more important to get things done and finished and see if you can maybe solve things further down the line to, to help you regain what you may have lost, um, you know, previously. Yeah. But, you know, for me, I, I always keep a cool, calm head and just focus on solving that problem and then moving on. I, I try tend not to flap around and just, like I said, you know, you have a lot of experienced crew members who are very uh, adept at solving these kind of problems. And just for me, it's always listen to them and use them, use their talent. That's why they're there. And, um, and then make the decisions, you know, I ultimately make the decisions and choices to make sure that we get everything we need. Well, as we begin to wrap up here, more broadly speaking, you mentioned there problem solving, being strategic, all those things really important for a, in your role as a director. What other, what other innate or learnt skills would you say are crucial to directing film or television? Um, I, well, I think communication is really important. Um, I think also being open to people's ideas. You know, you never. It's very like easy to think. Filmmaking is not like painting, where you can literally get a canvas and and draw and paint exactly what you want it to look like, and you can keep doing it until you get it right. Filmmaking is much more of a collaborative art, and and you've got everyone has their skill set. And even though you imagine something in a specific way and you tell everyone to do that, be open to other people's ideas and be like, you know, your DP might say, you know what, what if we just put a big red light across this scene, right? Instead of doing what you suggested, you know, with the moonlight and, and it's something you may not have thought about. And then you might go, actually, no, I want it to be moonlight because I want this to happen or I want this person to come out of that darkness. Or you might go, actually, that's an absolutely amazing. I, I never thought of that. Let's let's do it, you know. And or somewhere in between, you go, let's have a look at it, you know. Let's see what it looks like, you know. And that comes down to whether an actor wants to do a particular performance, whether a costume designer wants someone to wear a hat, or, you know, or a glove or whatever, you know. They, these ideas will come through, but be open to it. Don't just dismiss them, because the worst thing you can do with it when you're leading a crew is to kind of push down people's creativity. That's, you know, people get into this business because they want to be creative. They choose their fields because they, they want to show off their ability and their talent. And so to diminish that is, is the worst thing I feel like you can do. You know, I want them to enjoy doing that and express their creativity. And yeah, and ultimately I make those choices and whether they, they stay or go, but I want people to come to me with lots of ideas and 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 be excited about what they're doing. You know, that's like the the most important job as a director is to make sure that everybody who is working on something is excited and enjoying what they're doing. Well, yeah, I love that. And actually, I've interviewed quite a few directors over the last few months, and that has been a very common theme. You know, not, you know, taking advice from crew from everyone on set. You know, being very open and not having a huge ego. Um, so let's wrap things up. What is your advice for those looking, aspiring directors looking to get into this kind of work? What would your advice be for them? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think about this a lot because it's, 
the, being a director is probably the toughest job and it, and it's the sort of most encompassing with lots of different aspects to it and you know i i wonder if people when they want to get into being a director really want to do that if that's the the thing that they really want to do if if you are writing a story and you want to direct it would it be better to let somebody else direct it and watch how they direct it and learn how to direct it rather than jump in and and try and direct it and and not necessarily achieve the goal that you you know it be the best thing that it could be you're better off letting somebody else direct it who's maybe a bit more experienced but you work with them to make sure it's going to be the the film that you want it to be but you get to experience how they make it and learn those tricks before you get to actually take the reins yourself so that's one thing i mean and i think that goes for everything whether you're on camera whether you being an editor i mean you know i'm very fortunate i my background was editing and i kept editing and and that's given me a lot of confidence when i go on to set to know exactly what i need to shoot and get that in the bag and i know when i'm missing things and i flag those to the editor but and i managed to work ways around getting that so i think what you don't want when you first starting out as a director is to set yourself up to fail you know i think it's really it's a really difficult thing to pick yourself up and make another film either because the film doesn't end up being as good as you want it to be or you have a like a breakdown because it's you're having an overload of things that you didn't realize you have to deal with you know but you like the idea of so so somewhere between the two i say to people if you really want to direct take your time like you know be on set as a first ad or you know script editor is like a fantastic job to be because um sorry script supervisor cuz you're literally with the director all the time and you get to witness this complications that you you're going to have to confront when you get onto set so literally it's not necessarily a shadowing thing cuz you you have a very important function uh, in in the project but i would really stress on people you know get into those kind of positions and really spend at least a couple of years in those positions getting to understand how when you actually really get onto set how the best directors thrive and move forward and how other directors maybe struggle and find it difficult to to make their way so by the time you get to take that step as a director or you make a choice and go actually i just rather be the writer i don't want to deal with that headache and put myself through that stress you know or i just rather just be a a, a dop like be the camera or i'd rather be the editor because i actually get a lot more control o- over and get a lot more say in what the final product's going to be but if that is not enough for you i i mean i'm someone who got thrown into it and i've just learned on my way up and these are the observations i've made for myself it's like i'm very comfortable leading a team of people like i'm very happy to stand in front of 200 people and tell them what's going to happen and and tell you know and be specific and be clear and and all those things and and not stress out about it you know those elements come into play and and yeah you know you're going to have people helping you but it's also managing like oh actually if if i'm not seen as really leading this team and this crew it's kind of being taken off my hands like i'm just there 
but actually other people are really making the, the choices and decisions. That's not a great feeling to have either when you know that you're the director, but you're not actually functioning as that. So you've got to manage these expectations and really be ready to, to perform and be the best you can be without like, you know, pissing people off because you don't necessarily know everything. They don't maybe know everything, but if you cause, you know, if you come down too heavy handed on someone, then that's reflects on the whole, like the whole crew, it ripples through the whole crew. These are the kind of things you can't, it's really hard to explain until you find yourself in these situations, but we've all witnessed it and all been there and seen it. So in that sense, you want to minimize those and put yourself in a position where you really know you're going to, you're setting yourself up to succeed and not to fail. It's like, it's a tough one, but I, I, I say to people, directing is, is the hardest job. It feels like it's the easiest job, but actually if you're really functioning as a director, it's the hardest job. And if you want the hardest job, then you need to be ready for that. But don't feel like it's, you're going to do that job because it's the easiest job. It's, it really is not. So, you know, that's, that's what I'd say. It's, it's very competitive and that's why it's competitive because people that thrive on it and function and do it well, they get to continue doing that. And I, I feel very fortunate. I've done a few things and, and I've continued to work uh, all this time. So it's good. Wonderful. Well, that's fantastic advice. Really appreciate your time today. Finally, how do people watch and when can they watch High State 8? So High State 8 goes out on Paramount Plus on 29th of September. And then it goes out on Showtime on 1st of October. And, and then I guess it'll be on Showtime for a few repeats or whatever on linear TV. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Manoj, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Special thanks, of course, to Menhaj Huda. Check out Heist 88 on Showtime right now and follow us on social media, Soundstage Insider on Instagram and Soundstage In on X. And we'll see you again next time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.